Welcome to the Taiwanese Diaspora Podcast, where we use personal storytelling to connect people of Taiwanese heritage from all around the world. I am Cynthia, and I'm excited to use this podcast platform as a way to explore stories of immigration, of career selection, of mental health, of identity, and uh, about what it means to be Taiwanese X. 大家好,欢迎收听台湾人网络广播。我是阿秀,然后用这个平台来跟华侨华裔的台湾人聊他们的生活过程和未来的梦想。Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm excited to share an interview I did with Angie Wang from last summer, July 2019. It is mid-March 2020 now. We're in the height of the coronavirus. I hope everyone is taking care of themselves. Wash your hands, don't touch other people. Stay home if you can. I'll be working through a number of backlog interviews I have, so hopefully you'll get to enjoy that in the coming weeks as well. I'm really excited to share this interview. It is truly bilingual, so you'll hear everything in English and then in Chinese. And she goes into depth about her career choices thus far. Angie and I are working on a really fun project, and we're excited to announce that very soon. So stay tuned for that. 这几个月很忙，然后很多事情发生。现在是二零二零年的三月份，才把它准备好播出来给大家听。Angie用英文跟中文两个语言来解释她这几年工作的选择跟过程。我跟Angie最近开始做一个新的项目，很兴奋可以
literature did inspire me to becoming who I am, but there are a lot of social issues that just cannot be solved just by like digging really deep into theories. So I think sociology will be a good mix between theory and um, practical solutions to societal problems. So I decided to apply for sociology programs, PhD programs in the States. Um, I failed most of them <laughs> for the schools I applied for. Uh, Columbia accepted me, but transferred me into a master's program. That's how I landed at Columbia master's program when many people asked me. That's how my answer. And <clears throat> so I went to study sociology master's program at Columbia University for one year. Later, after graduation, I worked in New York and Chicago like part-time for various jobs, like research jobs for one year. And then later, at the end of my Chicago internship at a medical school, I decided to come back to Taiwan because of my family reason. I really miss home at that time. So that's basically what was going on for my students' life. And after coming back to Taiwan, again, another reverse culture shock, but this time was in workplace. But I am now more, I think, like mature and calm and I'm more aware of the emotional issues I have when I have all these culture shocks and like the adaptation problems I have after like studying so many stuff and experiencing what is it like to be a like first generation female Asian in American society. And I'm better at dealing with my emotions and then getting closer to my family way more than I could have before I get my master's degrees in the States. So I later work as a tech analyst in a governmental owned think tank. And then for three years, I really hated. Were you in Taipei? Yeah, in Taipei. And at the same time, I developed passionate powerlifting. And last year, I quit and decided to be a personal trainer and see where it takes me to in the future. Basically, where I am right now, I'm recording this interview with Cynthia while I'm sitting at the lake house in Connecticut. So exciting. <笑>可以先用中文再讲一次给我们台湾的听众好啊我的名字是王玉秀然后我是在台中出生长大然后在台中念高中台中女中然后后来去念台大外文系然后为什么会一开始会有来美国念书的机会是因为就是就是大家知
呃，念书一年之后留下来再工作了一年，然后做不同的研究的实习。嗯，最后因为一些家庭的因素，然后真的很想家，然后所以回台湾。然后当然就是又有再次的反文化冲击，可是因为经过这么多年，就是来来回回，然后对于自己身份的问题也想了很多。然后就是家里因为发生的事情，让我觉得可以更成熟的面对，就是去看自己的情绪跟自己对于就是身份的想象和建构这样。然后所以回来以后，虽然还是会有一些觉得。不能适应的地方，然后可是适应的还不错。然后我在一个呃科技的智库工作了三年，然后没有很习惯办公室的生活。在工作的时候，同时就是对建立三项很有兴趣。然后去年的时候就决定，就是对于健身的热情，就是让我决定最后可以转职成为健身教练。这样，所以我现在是。在台北的一个工作室当健身教练，然后在现在正此时此刻跟 Cynthia 在康乃迪克州的一个湖边小屋录我们的访谈，太棒了。<笑> so when we were talking about、uh, your experience here in the U.S., you talked about.、Um, I'm really curious about your thesis research. Can you tell us a little bit more? For my master thesis, I was studying a transnational Buddhist organization that works on disaster reliefs across the nations. I read a very interesting paper about the Buddhist organization in Taiwan and how female took their participation in the organization as a way to transform their female identity and achieve more gender equalities. They also touched a little bit on the globalization and how it brought power to spread their thoughts onto different immigrant communities around the world. But that study was mostly from the perspective of people in Taiwan.、Uh, I was choosing some topics that I can discuss for my master's thesis, and I found out there is a chapter in New York City too. So I went there a couple of times, and then think it would be a good way to look. More into the issue, and I decided to take this organization as my thesis research object. But it gets really emotional when I dig more into it and found out being an immigrant in the states, the meaning of participating in this transnational organization is very different for those for those local Taiwanese citizens. And、um, there are many aspects about this organization. Organizations, but because of who I am and what I'm, I was dealing with at at that time when I was studying neuro, I decided to see the differences of the first and generation, how they participated in the organization, and how what is the meaning for them, and what does it mean? What does Buddhism mean for them? What does participating in a transnational relief organization means for them, and how they use this as an approach to understanding their identity and form a Bridge of communication between two generations. Can you explain what sociology is and how one does sociology research? I think there must be there. There is a stricter definition of what sociology is, and like a textbook version. But for me, like sociology for me is a way of understanding the world from multiple perspectives.、Um, before I learned sociology or literature theory. I just understand the world from like a very personal, very emotional perspectives. Sociology tell you how to look at like a personal issue from societal changes 
from the perspective of globalization. So say, for example, I grew up in a, in a family where my dad's working in China. And for me, that was a very uh, emotionally difficult thing for me because I can see him only like once a month. I was trapped in this emotional thing for a long time until like I read sociology books and they told me this is a reflection of how Taiwanese societal change, like how the economy take fights over time and our factory moved to China and part of the fathers in a lot of families goes into China and then build the economy there. While a lot of kids here stay in Taiwan feel there is a pseudo single family phenomenon in Taiwan. And that time, I, I think sociology inspired me to link my personal issue as a societal phenomenon. And I feel connected with a lot of people who I never thought I would have connected with in Taiwan who also face a situation. And knowing that I am not a particular case, like I am not the, uh, it's not because of who I am that make uh, the separation inside our family, but because we are dealing with this whole global and societal change made me feel much, much better about my own situation. And I think sociology is a way to empower people to look deeper and look broader at a certain social issues and by doing so, providing solutions to social problems. That's a great explanation. Thank you. But then also allow first generation Taiwanese American the subjects, but humanities 我去探讨第一代跟第二代的美国移民怎么透过参与这个组织来建构他们自己的身份然后去了解台湾的这个根的文化然后就是就是刚刚清楚来问我说什么是社会学然后我觉得对我来说简单来讲就是社会学它是提
就是一个全球化现象的个体家庭的展现。然后在这个我的家庭的特别情况，其实在社会学上面，他们把它叫做假的单亲家庭，就是因为。台湾在整个就是经济变迁的过程中，那些就是工厂移到大陆，然后势必有一些人，尤其是父亲们被移到大陆去，然后这一些小孩他们长大在一个没有父亲的家庭里面。虽然父母上在法律的定义上是结婚的，可是其实是以单亲家庭的方式被带大的。然后就在了解，原来这不是我一个人的因素而造成家庭有这样子的情感的感受，而是。把我自己放在一个很大的社会的层面来看，我就会突然觉得有一种解脱的感觉。所以对我来说，社会学就是一个给你很不同的看事情的方式。这样，虽然我觉得现在在念社会学的应该还是要把我打爆，因为这是不是一个很 textbook 应该有的正统的解释？没有啊，但是我觉得这样子解释，让我们可以了解。我小时候在这边也认识一些在这边就单亲父母的家庭。可能母亲在这边，然后，嗯，父亲在别的国家工作。可可能那时候我们比较多接触的就是台湾人有这样子的情况，嗯，越来越懂的话就说哦，其实很多别的国家也是这样子，尤其是如果想要搬到别的国家，嗯，然后提高经济收入的。对 ，Part of your thesis study was looking at identity. Can you talk one about how you conducted your research, and then two some of the takeaways, um, and how that affects the differences between first and second generation, or like third and fourth generation that you interviewed on how they viewed their personal identity?、Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a very complicated <laughs> question. I'm still thinking about how to formulate it. The way I do it is called ethnography plus in-depth interview, which is you embed yourself in. The organization, and then you do everything with them as an organization member or outsider, with them knowing that you're doing so or not knowing that you're doing so, and also you do a one to one point, one to two hours interview with every person that you're interested in talking with that is social representative of the of the organization, and then ask them about your research questions.、Um, so I went to a lot of disaster relief with them. Events with them, with a lot of celebration events with them, like Chinese New Year, Hurricane Sandy, disaster relief、uh, ceremonial. I also did a, I think, thirteen in-depth interview with first generation and second generation members. And one thing I found the most shocking for me is, for the first, even though in any public occasion no one talks about this, but if you ask them interview questions one on one, you can see how second generation and Asian American are struggling to <clears throat> find their belonging in the organization, while not trying to distance themselves from the stigmatization of Buddhism.、Um, for the first generation, on the other hand, they have no problem; they have no misconflict identification of with the group. They're just completely embracing the group value, and they thought they're promoting promoting the good of humanity. By promoting the value of the, this organization, and I think it's a good way for their kids to understand Taiwanese culture because this organization is stemmed from Taiwan. Something I found very very restrictive is 
every time I participated in the organization, I was required to wear certain uniforms and call people in certain names. And that was something that unimaginable for me in Taiwan because for me, like Taiwanese society is pretty uh, progressive and open. We still have this patriarch patriarchal values exist in Taiwanese society, but it's not as strong as before. And we don't have that much regulation on how girls' hair should be, how we should wear our clothes, how we should perform, how we should call our relative in, in, uh, according to familial hierarchy. But it was restricted. It was very strict how you should behave in the organization. So I asked second generation how they think about Taiwanese culture. They said, oh, I think Taiwanese culture are so strict that you have to wear your hair in a certain way, that you have to wear your costume in a certain way. Until I pointed it out, this is specific to this organization. This is not what contemporary Taiwanese society is. So turns out uh, participating in this organization is the only way to understand the root of their culture. So everything they saw in our organization, they thought it, that is what Taiwan is all about. So they have a very wrong imagination about what our contemporary society is. And also they express the fact that they really, in as a second generation in, in this society with such a diverse culture, they really long for belonging to a community and a group. And being able to be so, in such a close tie with the group members of this organization and do everything together is a way of finding their way back to the community. But at the same time, when they need to do like fundraising for the events in their schools or doing some like community works in helping local residents, they are so resistant in putting on the uniforms or telling people that, hey, would you donate something to this Buddhist organization I belong to? Because they don't want to be associated with the caught-ish rituals or the stigmatization of Buddhism as a minority religion in the States. So I see these struggles among so many Taiwanese Americans while the first generations, they use uh, participation in disaster relief events as a way of putting, like reversing their minority roles. During those events, you give out material, how do you say, just uh, disaster relief goods like blankets or some like small amounts of money or so waters or food to undocumented immigrants, for example. That's the time that you have to use organization power and resources to give, to reverse your soul, reverse your role as a minority into someone that is giving uh, other people help. For them, that's a way to empower themselves and by imposing the organization rules onto the second generation members, I feel like it's a way for them to resist. Yongjongwenjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangjangj
the people, you, the second generation people you interviewed about, hey, this is not the only side of Taiwan or this is not the only type of Taiwan culture. What did you introduce them to instead? Or was that not your role as a sociologist? Um, no, I would chat with them as friends too. I was just telling them that no one keep this hair bun in Taiwan anymore and that we don't even have uniforms in certain schools. That we don't have rule, we don't have a rule, and 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 we don't have a the other Taiwan like did you do any sort of things with like music or movies or food or anything like what if it's if the group kind of centers around disaster relief as like a goal or like an identity for them what other sort of things could they rally around um in addition to disaster relief we also do like uh Chinese New Year celebration as a whole group but in a more, like, also in a more traditional way. So in addition to telling them about the facts I experience, I don't think I've ever introduced it, something very concrete to them. But I was just pointing out that, hey, this is how we do in Taiwan. Like, for Chinese New Year, we'll have more casual thing going on instead of this, like, very strictly organized events something like that it's just hard to describe is this hard to describe what is going on in the society if you don't live inside it i guess thank you we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to your your thesis and some of the readings okay so then you also talked about reverse culture shock or actually first culture shock and then reverse culture shock mm-hmm. what were some of the things that you found to be culture shock when you first got to asu uh, just like everyone respect me as a individual human being, and that this is this is the following is really cliche though that you're expected to speak up in a class, that everyone is asking about how I feel towards certain things and want me to express my opinions, um, that we can really just dress very, just dress whatever we want. What do you mean by by treating you as an individual? How is that different in here versus Taiwan? So in Taiwan, in Taiwan, we usually call professors, instructors, boss, managers by their titles. We don't call their names. So we see the person as mostly the position they occupy or how much power they have instead of who they really are. In the States, they call you your name. This is very different. No matter, like, you might call someone Mr. or Mrs. something if you're not super familiar with them, but most of the time you can just call their names, which is really, that was something super powerful for me. Um, when I went back to Taiwan to work, our organization leader was someone who worked in the high-tech firm in the States for a long time. So I thought she was used to this kind of like, hey, I call your name to just uh, be friendly with you and so I call her her name instead of her organization title 
thinking that she will know she will know this kind of American culture for a long time. She must be used to it, but she turned out to be very not uh, she turned out to be not very happy with this act. Apparently, people just enjoy so much about like being respected as how much power the title you have. Yeah, I could see that. That's so interesting. It's like such a little thing, but can make such a big difference in how you probably feel like how comfortable you feel in somewhere like this in a new new, a new environment right um because this is such a long time ago i couldn't name like specific i will i will be complaining to you the whole day if i just know you right <laughs> up but like now that i forgot most of them but even this time i was interacting with my partner's family i still have a lot of culture chat that we have just discussed like um there are just no there are just no expectation of children they 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 discuss with you like you're the same age as them. They don't talk down to you. They don't look at you as that you are a person with no autonomy, with no like wisdom of deciding what's right or wrong for you. But even here, they talk to kids like kids are in adults. And by throwing kids into this kind of dynamic, they learn to be acting more maturely too. They won't be thinking that they don't have this knowledge of deciding what they need to do. And like, uh, we used to express our feelings. I think I was really shocked when someone told me that I don't really like this. I hate this. I don't really want to go to that event. Because in Taiwan, we will try to frame things in a way that everyone will be happy with the situation. So everything will be really smoothly expressed. But I guess I was so used to this kind of blunt expression of feelings or opinions. When I do that to that, when I did that in Taiwan, first few months I came back to Taiwan, my mom was just, my mom couldn't handle it. She think I'm the most rebellious kid ever. And then she would, she would just feel so heartbroken that I just talk so, talk to him, talk to her so straightforwardly. Like she cooked some dish for me. I say, oh, she would just be completely shocked and sitting at the table and feel really heartbroken. And it's only through her expression. And then I will real, I would realize that, oh, wow. I must did something super American that I didn't I didn't even realize. Stuff like this, or like we're just so used to wandering around or do things by ourselves, but in like in Taiwan you need to get your parents consensus to show your respect for them. And that's something just super unusual for me. Or like turning down friends for your friends invitation to karaoke or you just can't you just can't like be that straightforward anymore. It's very, very rare for me. Oh, this part is very, I think it's, 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 或者是你必须要叫老板老板，叫经理经理，叫总经理总经理，而不是叫他们的名字。然后这对我来说是，就是非常不习惯的事。哎，你觉得那个是因为在政府上班吗？嗯，没有，是都是这样。
，对，除非你是在外商工作，可能会有些不一样。对，嗯，或者说就是有时候我讲话，嗯，一开始来美国的时候，对于就是大家那么直接表达他们对我们提出的事情的喜好，就是很不习惯。然后所以，但是我后来就慢慢习惯，然后我已经忘记自己已经变成这样子了。然后有时候回台湾的时候，我就会。很直接讲出自己的意见，比如说朋友要你上卡拉 OK， 或是妈妈帮你煮一道菜，然后就会我可能会直接说哦我不想去，哦我不喜欢吃这个，然后就会看到他们非常的惊讶、失望，然后失落并且受伤的眼神，然后那个在那个当下我才发现，天哪，我刚刚讲那句话可能不适合在台湾的社会讲，但是我已经就是太习惯到忘记这一些事，然后所以现在都要一直提醒自己，是不是要再缓和一些。说话的方式，但在台湾要要要拒绝人家的话，或是如果你不想要做的东西，或是不喜欢的东西，你要怎么表达？比如说，人家要你去上卡拉 OK， 你不可以说哦，不要，我不想去。你要说哦，没有关系，你们去好好享受就好了。哦，<笑>就是要用非常委婉的方式啊，这个这个必须学，<笑>对。然后，嗯、呃，有很多有，我觉得有一个词汇是我觉得最有趣的，就是，嗯，我觉得我们可我们很容易就会想要用让大家觉得用用另一个人觉得很不好意思的方式，让他们就是去迫使他们来到达到我们想要的一个目的。然后有一次，我记得我就在跟我的美国朋友就是在做一样的行为，但是我并不。并不，并没有意识到我在做一样的事情。然后他就说 ，Can you stop guilt tripping me? And I was like, What does guilt tripping mean? And then he explained to me, and I was like, Oh wow, I didn't even know I am doing this. Like this whole thing was just so taken for granted in our culture that we didn't even realize, even realize this is an act. We didn't even realize that we are making someone guilty. There is like small moments and stuff like this that made me realize what my culture norm is. How do you say that in Chinese? Like that's so interesting because like, oh,、uh, that's the thing that we don't have. I don't think we have a word for guilt tripping、mm. because we don't have this concept. We take it for granted. This、yeah. is how we do things, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, 你介绍一下你刚来美国的时候，你你要去 Subway 吃饭的话，我们 Subway 是美国的那个一个 like 快快速餐厅快餐。I just get really nervous. Like I don't even know what do they mean by like. For here to go, this is something I don't know what it means. Do you want to receive in the back or? 就那个我也不懂是什么意思。然后 for every specific ingredients they put in the subway, what kind of breads you use, uh, what kind of veggies they they have, what kind of sauce you want to have, like I don't even know what like what a sweet onion mean. What a like this is something that never existed never existed in my. In my food culture before, so I have to go online and go to Subway website and memorize every ingredients and check out the meaning of that ingredient to see is it spicy, is it not spicy, and then make a rehearsal of what will be going on during a Subway order before I actually go on a Subway order. I guess this is something that exists in every culture. Though when you go to a new country, you just need to like, I think just 菜单就是最难。<laughs> You're so well prepared. 准备的很好。嗯嗯，但是我不知道哎，真的，如果没有把那些 ingredients 弄熟的话，会很难
活，好好的活着吧。我记得我第一次到 Whole Foods 的时候，我就看到有就是 ，I thought it was 就是青椒炖肉之类的 ，and then like 我就把整个青椒吃掉。I thought it's just a regular green bell pepper. It turns out it's jalapeno. It was so crazy. Yeah, I know. Like it's hard to survive if you don't know the food thing properly. <laughs> 离离开你的政府的那个 think tank 的工作，想要追求 power lifting。对，原本就是想要 power lifting。Yeah, or how did you how did you decide? Because it's so. Because I can I can see that Taiwanese parents say, "Oh, you have such a stable job, ah, something." And then you are also from the government office, and they will probably be very jealous that you got this job. And I think Taiwanese parents value stability. Right, like stability and jobs. So, if you want to leave and you want to pursue what you want to do, how did that conversation go with your parents, or if if you if you talk to them at all about it? Um, I talked to my dad first. Uh, because my dad is a very open-minded person. Then I talked to my sister, and like, when I can't hide anymore, I talked to I talked to my mom. So, but I have already have many many family revolutions before this, so they are sort of used to it. I think it's not just a, not just like Chinese when people would be like, "Why will you be a trainer with a Columbia degree? Why don't you go to like a more related school when while you are studying in the states or in Taiwan already? Instead, of you get a sociology." And then you work as a personal trainer, but that's the thing that you don't know what your passion is until you do something, and then you know you like something and you don't like something. For me, I just talked to. I guess it's like a desperation. Like I was trying to find meaning for me as a human being. I was trying for to find meaning for life, but I just don't find something that was so physically stimulating or so emotionally、uh, enlightening. Can you say that enlightening?、Uh, for me, as lifting weights in the gym, especially for Asian girls, especially like I am like super. I think I can consider super super tiny. Like I wear petite petite double zero. <laughs> I'm only like hundred pounds and five five foot one or two inches.、Um, I found it really powerful when when people. See me lifting in the gym, and when I traveled around the world and tell people I'm doing powerlifting, because it just it subverts their imagination of how a soft and cute, like little Asian girl, can be, and it was also like I don't know, I just get so fired up, secretly observing people's posture and think about the corrective exercise I can help them do, and. It's、uh, like the mental flow when I was doing lifting and the a hundred percent focus on how much I can achieve for myself instead of other people,、um, to the extent that even I get a really really good projects in the tech firm, and that's sort of as considered as a milestone for many of my fellow team members because it's a way to like make them really famous and successful, but. When it comes to me, well, I put into this really like fancy situation. I just that's the time I realize I only care about lifting and nothing more. And I don't know 
if there is anything more stimulating for me to think about, to learn more about lifting and the science behind it, and also as a way to proving what females can do. So I just told my parents very honestly that all the way I was switching career and switching my field of studies, but I never really know what I really want to be as a human being on this earth. I cannot find my own meaning until I start lifting. And I know I can do so much more if I really work for my passion. And I will not starve to death if I switch to be a personal trainer. I still have so many skills that I can freelance for so they don't have to worry about me. Um, there are still, they just sort of half give, <laughs> gave up on me. We still have a lot of arguments until I onboard the job um, because of my passion. And also I feel very proud of what am I doing and feel very confident about, like I know I'm, even though I'm not like a super successful figure right now, I know I'm working on a path that aligns with my core value of who I am. So because of this, I don't feel, I don't feel, I don't, I don't re resent myself or my choice of career anymore. And because of this, I am also more open to talk about my feelings and emotion with my parents and being more empathetic and caring about them. And it's because through these changes they see in me, they decided to be really proud of me for changing my career too. At least for now. That's where I feel much like I love it. That's so great. We talked about meditation at some point. Is that related to your journey in powerlifting too? Uh, it is. I think it's actually through meditation that I was able to really just look at my own fears about what will happen if I give up a normal career. It's really fancy. I think it's really fancy to tell people, oh, I work in an analyst in a tech firm. I'm work, I'm a product man, I'm a product designer for this artificial intelligence product for fintech. It I just totally <laughs> right. I, I can keep lying to myself that I really like it and I like the title. But when you do meditation and you really look into your fear and then you walk so deep into your fear of not finding your meaning in life, you just you just know that you're doing the wrong thing. Um, I think meditation is a way to to like face really who you are and know what's really important to you. How would you say, how, what advice would you give to somebody who is in a similar boat? I think not just meditation, but it's also like a, a series of podcasts, book lists that through many, many small ideas that I review my life and my choices that make my final decision of career change. And one of the questions that I think the fear setting exercise, like knowing your fears like one by one and writing down if there are any ways out of your fear, what's the worst case scenario and what can you do to improve that worst case scenario? So this is the exercise by Tim Ferriss in her in his for our work week. The fear setting one is really good. Um, also the designing your life. The book is really good too. Is that the one by the Stanford professors? Right, right. You're asked to, to list out three different lives that you can have. 
with or without money constraint. And then it's the time. So I got into contact with this book because of one of the Hidden Brain podcasts interviewing that Stanford professor who, write, who writes this book. And there's a very, there's a very like shocking question he asks, uh, which is like, what would, if one day, in my case, it would be if one day uh, I tell you, sorry, Angie, tech industry doesn't exist anymore. Artificial intelligence is like, no one wants this anymore. And then you are not allowed to work in a tech firm whatsoever. What will you do? You are forced to think another option, right? So, so when you're not so focused and obsessed without the current situation, you're stuck and you start to think about other op options. And what I did at that time is I did a lot of mini experiments. I know that I really want to change into fitness industry, but I don't know what can I do in, in addition to a trainer or what kind of organization will take me. So I didn't quit my job, but instead I revised my resume and I sent it to like more than 30 fitness studios or like startup, um, fitness science, data science startups or think tank or like fitness related magazines to see, it, no, uh, it doesn't even matter if they have opening on career website or not. I literally just send in my resume and say, hey, um, I have this powerlifting record. I have this uh, certificate that I get and I'm really interested in fitness industry and this is my experiences and the skills I can offer. Do you have any projects that you're interested in working on that I can help you with? And turns out there are just so many under the table projects that need uh, someone to fill in, but, it's but they didn't declare to the, worst, to the world yet. And if you are able to take a step and actively reach this organization, you get ahead of the chance of, in front of before anyone else. Also, there is another thing that uh, the podcast interview of the author of Essentialism, the author says, one way to evaluate how valuable your current situation to you is to think about if you never have this project, how much are you willing to pay to get this project or to get the position you have right now? And I would think about it for one second. I was like, no, I won't pay anything to get whatever I have now. And that's the time I realized, like, wow, there's literally no point for me to stay in this job. Like, so a lot of like book lists, podcast interviews made me take the final step. But if it's, if I'm gonna summarize all this in one sentence, I would say go to Paul Miller, he can help you. Yeah, nice plug for Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. So essentialism, I, so actually this is really funny because essentialism is something that a book that um, one of the ladies I met at the yoga studio recommended to me, mm -hmm. Designing Your Life. I had met one of the professors when I was doing a program in Italy a couple of years ago. And Paul is actually, one of the people, probably the prime person who got me inspired enough to take the first step in starting this podcast. Mm -hmm. The other day I was, uh, I saw this designing your book on his, um, on the bookshelf and I, I just suddenly realized that while I was really living the second life I designed at that time, one year ago, which I didn't even I really have no, I really have no like expectation of it will be realized in any time of my life. I would just, my first life would be, so it would force you to separate 
three lives into five state uh three stages like first year three year and then five to ten years and my first life would be i would be a senior tech analyst and then a technical analyst manager and probably i would be like a head of a department or something and i as i write it down I just like oh my god my life is so boring and the second life would be be a person i switch my job and be a personal trainer and then go on this journey then the third life would be being a surfer in Hawaii if I don't have any money concern but I already checked that off because I went back to Hawaii and I found out it's nothing interesting anymore so I'm literally living the second life which is the life I most wanted which is pretty cool that's amazing I'm gonna have to do this exercise <laughs> how do you recommend it okay really quickly I'll let you go can we do that little segment in Chinese too how how um just 当初想要转职的时候，我觉得就是开始学习冥想是很重要的。meditation是很重要的一部分，因为就是我觉得你可以在一天二十四小时之中，透过不同的身份转换，就是用你平常习惯的身份跟思维模式去跟别人讲说，
把那些很大的恐恐惧化为小小的行动，比如说就是在你还在上班的时候，就去投很多履历，然后让你就可以知道你以现在你这样的人生经验来说，你到不到你的梦想工作，或者是有没有一些工作是你可能以为就是并不存在，但其实很多。公司他们正在进行那些计划，只是他们还没有对外公布，所以他们其实正需要这样的人才，而且他们甚至不知道像你这样子的人才其实存在在这个世界上。所以，如果你可以透过这些不会损，就是不会对你现在拥有的物质或者是、呃、生活职位有影响的小行动去证明或者去推翻你对于未来就是梦想职业的想象。然后第二本书是就是设计你的人生，它让你做。我觉得最酷的是，就是它会告诉你根本就没有人知道自己想要做什么，而且是你不知道在不同的条件下你会对自己有什么样的想象。所以对我一个很有用的练习就是把，就是我会被迫就第一个人生，你可以想象三个人生，或是很多个人生。第一个人生就是你现在正在进行的人生，然后你完全不做任何改变，你就去走的话，你会成，呃，一年、三年、五年后你会是什么样子？那第二个人生、就是。你朝你的梦想职业去走的话，一三五年你会你会变成什么样子？那第三个是，如果你完全没有任何金钱限制的话，你会想要过什么样的人生？那对我来说，那就是科技市场分析师，可能分析经理，然后可能会是部门主管。那第二个人就会是当健身教练，然后可能成为讲师，然后可能成为健身房的 owner， 然后或者是加入一个可以引领、引推动世界潮流的某一种学派。那第三个就是当在夏威夷冲浪，然后就是就是很超级 random 完全不相关的人生，可是你会就是你会被迫去想，就是如果说今天科技业完全不存在，然后人工智慧完全消失，你被迫去要做另外一个工作的时候，你其实是有很多不同的可能性的。那对我来说，我就是生活在我第二个就是最梦想的生活中，我觉得那很酷，嗯、呃。<咳>非常推荐大家去念，就是设计你的人生的这本书，虽然就是它的名字也非常 cliche。那第三个是极简主义，其实极简主义我觉得大部分都不太相关，可是有一个就是让我最当头棒喝的是，就是他在讲你去怎么衡量现在这件事情对你有多重要，然后是透过下面这个问题，这个问题就是当你并不拥有你现呃，我们很多人都会因为已经拥有某样东西，然后所以就提高对这个东西的估价。然后，所以比如说，我已经有这个车子，然后我要把它卖掉，我觉得很可惜。我好像很喜欢它。如果这个衣服我好像把它丢掉很可惜，那我这个工作如果没有它，我是不是我就是原本前程万里？那我就不想，不就不想要辞掉这个工作？那可是如果想一想，今天如果你完全没有这份工作的话，你愿意花多少时？你愿意花多少钱，或是愿意花多少代价去获得它呢？然后，当我听到这个问题的时候，那时候心里就想说，哎。天呐，我完全不想要用任何的代价去换这个工作哎，然后就那是一个就是当头棒喝的当下，就让我知道我确实是需要做什么东西，所以我就觉得，总归来讲，我觉得虽然是就是那种自我帮助的书籍，就是很丰富，然后会让你就会觉得说，会让你需要卸下自尊心态去看那些书籍，然后他们有时候也许不也不是最政治正确或者是最有社会正义的书，可是。如果你真的需要，如果你真的到了一个人生的地步，是你需要有一个帮你想象另外一个生命框架的方式的话，那些书就是还是蛮有用的。谢谢，太棒了<笑> ！Oh my god！ 哦、uh, oh, 
，Thank you so much， 有种把人生再想一遍的感觉。<笑>真的，我每天都是在想，但是我还是太急了，你就按下心来，然后就把你现在做工作做好，什么什么什么的。但是很少碰到别的亚洲人，是我我有碰到很多很外国人或是美国人，类似泡一样，这样可以跳出去，然后勇敢自己走，很 freelance 这个方向。但是我不知道，我还是对这个很还是很有紧张，还没有看到有什么别的亚洲榜的榜样来说 ，OK， 没关系。<笑> you know， so 最后一个想要跟你联络的人要怎么跟你联络？哦、oh, ，好啊，嗯、uh, ，这是 so cool。OK， 如果就是 Facebook 的话，可以找 Curious Barbell，C U R I O U S B A R B E L L。那是我的 Facebook page， 然后如果就是想要更 formal 一点，可以寄到我的 Columbia 信箱 yw two six two six o two at columbia edu， 然后会回信。Cool， <laughs> thank you and thank you so much. This is really fun. Thank yeah no thank you. We can do it again next time. Yeah, take、sure. a different topic. Sure. Um, 想要做一个读书会。哎<laughs>、hey, ，那很酷，好哎。Uh, off the topic, I strongly recommend you to go to Philosophy Friday. They have such a strong opinion about their Chinese identity. No joke, hardcore. Yeah, thank you for sending that. I have to go check it out. Hmm, this is really fun. You said you volunteer with them? Yeah, when I was in New York City. In Taiwan, I also participated, but in Taiwan, I was busy. Enjoy the rest of your、thank、trip. You. You guys enjoy playing? Very fun. It's exhausting, but it's really fun. Thank you for listening to our conversation. 好，再见。All right. See you next time.